from runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 327, Getting Up to Speed with IIS 8, with guest Scott Forsyth. Recorded Monday, July 22nd, 2013. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and you're listening to Run As Radio, and thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Scott Forsyth, and he's the co-founder of VastNet and an IT consultant for Microsoft Web Platforms. He's been the recipient of the Microsoft MVP Award for 10 years, which makes him terribly old. I think I've done that too. Uh, switching between ISP.NET, IIS, and now combined IIS, ASP.NET discipline. And isn't it nice that they invented that too? Because that's definitely, you know, the lifestyle. Uh, he's co-authored Professional IIS 7 and Professional IIS 8, both from Rocks, and he's a plural site author currently working on the course for URL rewrites. And you can follow him on Twitter at, at Scott Forsyth or visit his blog at weblogs.asp.net slash OWScott. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Richard. And you, yeah, you were an Orcs Web guy from the way back days. Yeah, yeah, I know you from then. Uh, I've been doing that for 10 years, and actually that's what brought me down to the States. And that was a great opportunity to learn IS. I'd worked with uh, so many different opportunities there. Uh, but the last year and a half, I'm on my own now and working for uh, one primary customer about half my time mm-hmm. and doing some other IT consulting. And then also VastNet is kind of one of my primary passions. And most of the time, we just see each other at like tech heads and things. You're usually around the IIS team. Right. Uh, so what is VastNet? VastNet, it's an instant on virtual machine. It's kind of similar to what you'd see with the Azure. It's cloud computing, except it's targeting the workstation rather than the always-on machine. Mm-hmm. So people that are wanting training scenarios or uh, dev labs or you just want to spin up a machine, you're in the machine in 20 seconds. There's nothing like it on the web. So if you just want to grab a machine, kick the tires, use it for three minutes just to prove something or use it for three hours, and when you're done, you just delete it or you save it and pick up again later on. You only pay for when you're using it. And it's got that kiosk effect of you can easily get back to the original state and go again. So exactly great for trials and things like that. That's cool. Right. It had occurred to me that even though Windows 2012 has been out for a while, Server 2012 has been out for a while, we have really not focused on what happened in IIS for eight. And now with the preview out, I guess 8.5. Right. I think part of the reason you'll find that is that the IS7 upgrade was a complete rewrite, or not a complete rewrite, but it really looked like it. Uh, the UI completely changed. It was become very modular. Yeah. It was just a substantial change, a lot of support for web farms. And that was in the IS7. But the IS7.5 and 8.0 were much more incremental changes. It wasn't right. as much fanfare with it. And that's probably why it kind of slipped under the radar for many people. And it, was, it, was it really 7 was the one where they got serious about PowerShell and the UI was simply a wrapper over top of PowerShell commands? Uh, good question. Yeah, I think that was in 7 where the PowerShell is, yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly. sort of that big break of just shifting over. Uh, right. And I don't have a sense that even in IIS, now over in the Server 2012, they haven't really metroized IIS. No. Yeah, yeah the interface that they have 
which came in iOS 7.0, is really just the same still. Right. So it's more kind of WinForms type of, uh, but it is, it is modular. Uh, contrary to the iOS 6, which was, you know, a whole bunch of pop-up windows for you couldn't really scale at all. Yes. And now 7, if you want to add anything to 7 or any of the versions since then, you just add a new icon. It just really pops right in. So in your mind, is it just a trivial upgrade? If you've made it to 7, going to 8 and 8.5 is just not a big deal? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, there are some pretty exciting things there. and But really where the most benefit is, is a lot more of the scale. And they've been really focusing on the large-scale web host. Right. And so probably about half of the features in 8 and 8.5 are just meant to make things that used to work well, work really, really well at huge scale, as in thousands of sites. So this is all about multi-tendency, and I guess this is more evidence of uh, all the good ideas are coming from the Azure team are being coming down to the regular server product. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that in 8.5 now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the big things? What do you, what do you see as, as uh, real pivotal new features? Well, one of the key things in 8.0, and there's around nine or so things that came out in 8.0, um, one is the SNI support. That's the server name indication. Mm-hmm. And so if you remember back in the late 90s, we have the host header support where what would happen is the request comes in, and rather than making a decision, your binding decision on just the port and the IP address, you could do it on the host header. The problem at first is that not all browsers supported it, and the search engines didn't support it. Right. So people always said, we, you know, let's wait it out for a while. And, but now that's commonplace. You know, you always assume that a host header is going to be fine. The problem you run into now is with SSL and host headers. And you have a chicken before the egg because the host header is encrypted within the SSL packet. Right. But so you don't know which site to use to, or which certificate to use to decrypt that packet. And, you know, it's, it's a chicken before the egg kind of issue. The nice thing about SNI is that it has that packet or the host header is outside of the encrypted packet. It includes some extra information there that you can get before you decrypt it. And so it's a great idea. Now, the problem we have is we don't have universal support yet. You're still, I think, around 85% because IS6 on XP is one of the key holdouts. Right. Just just like IE6, you know. It's funny because I think all the browsers have got SNI now. Right. Uh, Did I say IS6? I'm My mistake. I meant IE6 okay. on XP. Right. But, well, and that's down to what? One and a half percent? Like it's the numbers are getting small for IE6. They are, but there's a still a certain holdout that there is still there. Right. Yeah. So some people will say, no problem. We'll use it then. SNI is great. And the bulk hosters, I think, might start to push some of their users that way. Right. But some people are saying, you know, even if we have, you know, five percent or three percent or ten percent, whatever it happens to be for their audience, that's still a significant, you know, that could represent thousands of users a day that are going to basically get bounced to their default site on the server rather than the appropriate one. Well, and is that is that a fair outcome? I mean, because clearly SNI is part of this HTTPS all the time sort of mindset. So if you're going to keep running IE6, you're going to be vulnerable. Right. Yeah, and a lot of people are trying to do that are saying, well, we'll leave IE6 in the dust now. Yeah. So it, it really becomes a judgment call. What we'll probably find is two or three years from now, SNI becomes just as common as host headers does today. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of waiting out the industry. So the support is now there in IS6. Some people can go ahead and use it, and others will wait for it. And so it is just a switch. You choose to turn it on turn it or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would hate to not have this on. I think I would literally split my site. Maybe I'm one of those guys who's going to throw up a page that says, hey, you're still an IE6, go get a real browser. Yeah, well, what you could do before is you just need a dedicated IP address right. for every unique SSL site. Yeah. And now you can start to share a single IP address. Again, it's meant for the bulk hoster. One IP address can host thousands and thousands of sites. Right. And especially with the IPv4 space getting used up, it's really important. Yeah. Well, let us not go down the uh, IPv6. That's a whole other set of stories. <laughs> right. And one we've addressed. Uh, all right. SNI is a great feature. Other favorites? Well, uh, CPU throttling. So in the past, CPU throttling was there, but it really, it was, I wouldn't recommend it because what it does is if someone hits that throttle, it stops the site. So what you're doing is you're protecting all the other sites on a server from an issue, but the site itself has a very abrupt. Yeah. The, in my mind, that was never CPU throttling. You know, that was, right. that, that was this, this red line of death. You know, <laughs> if you go over yeah. this line, you die. Yeah. And you're down completely. Yeah. Right, for a period of time. So finally, in IS8, they worked with the Windows Core teams, the, kind of these, they have to work between the departments. And so they did that in the IS8, and now it's true CPU throttling. You can say, we want to keep this down to 20% of the CPU at max, right. and it will keep working. It just may slow it down a bit. And this is more of that whole shared hosted discussion of, I do not want one runaway app to kill everybody else. Right. And again, yeah, it makes yep. sense for the bulk hoster, you know. But actually, I find most internal websites, most internal web servers, I, they have a lot of sites on them. Like, it's not that unusual when right. I'm working with a customer. It's like, it's relatively rare to have one server, one site. That's just not true. Oh, yeah, you're right. Even the corporate environment can yeah. have dozens of sites on a server. And and so you you can run into these situations where runaway apps bury that server and, and a whole bunch of people are unhappy. Although it's got to take some work to configure CPU throttling across a number of sites well. Well, you can set it at the server level. Mm -hmm. So you may say, let's just set this to 20% right. and all of them default to 20 and let's go to our one key site and make it 85 or 90. Right. And so you could do that. It's, it's pretty straightforward change, but you're right. It doesn't take too long for that to get hidden or one administrator makes a change. The other administrators have no idea that the first, first person did. Now, so in theory, if I tell the server, okay, 20% across the board, that means no given site can have more than 20% of the CPU resources of that server. Right. And interesting enough, it's not per site or app pool, it's per user. Oh, interesting. And so, uh, but for the most part, if people use, let's say, the app pool identity, then it is per app pool. Right. But in a shared hosting environment, you may give one user access, uh, make it the identity of, let's say, five app pools. Right. And then it's restricted by that user for all five app pools. And then you really would be, in it. if that's all you had on the site, that means you could never use more than 20% of the server. Right. Yeah, that interesting problem. You really want to split up across that. If I, if I wanted to set that cap of 20%, I need five app pools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, because it is really per app pool or, or at least per user. Right, and at least per user, yeah. at least five now, distinctive I'm users. I'm going back in time. I forget now the specs. That's not in the top of my mind, but I believe that it, it fails gradually, like it graduates in. If you have 100% of the CPU, it will allow it to use it. Right. As soon as you start to become CPU bound, then that kicks in. Right. And it starts to throttle it down. The main thing here is if other apps are demanding resources, they're going to get some. Right. Yeah. It's a, yeah they, that exactly. be, you know, the challenge with this is it's really tough to test this and have a real sense of how this would behave. Mm -hmm. Like setting up, I, I literally want to set up three or four simultaneous load tests 
onto a, uh, onto different sites on a server and watch their behavior. See when you bang against the throttle. Because I definitely banged against that old governor where it would just freeze the site. Right. So yeah, yeah, that's an interesting challenge to try and get all of that stuff right. All right, CPU throttling. Yeah, uh, there's two other. Uh, you have the dynamic IP restrictions and the FTP login restrictions are both pretty nice. And so the IP restrictions is backported to seven zero, and that allows basically uh, watching for denial of service attacks. Okay. And it's checking just two things: the concurrent request and the request over a period of time. And if it reaches those thresholds, it will drop that IP into a band list, basically, and uh, and then is unable to continue to bombard the server. So it really helps with denial of service attacks. And that's backported to seven zero, so it's not new in eight, but it was released in the eight. Time frame. Right. But it is a, and it's just a module you can drop in. Exactly. And yeah. it sort of speaks to the fingerprint of, of denial of service attacks that, you know, here in a normal, in a normal world, when a customer's hitting your site, typically mm-hmm. a given IP is hitting you once every couple of minutes. Like it's just not that much traffic. But in a DDoS, it's thousands of times per second. Yeah. Except they get pretty good at these. And I've battled with a few DDoSs over time. And some of these are pretty intelligent and that they will scale back on purpose and get as close to a real signature as they can. Oh, wow. And so it it gets very difficult to try to make that call. And then occasionally you get some that are proxying through, uh, let's say, let's say the Microsoft location. Right. And the amount that would come from a single proxied IP address could be really substantial. Yes. And then you end up blocking legitimate traffic. Yeah. The old AOL proxy problem too, right? Yeah. Certain IPs where you just got to say, you know what? You're going to get a lot of traffic off that IP. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Yeah. That Uh, makes the DDoS just so hard to avoid. Yeah. And I don't think about battling DDoS at the web server level. I think about it from the firewall perspective. Mm-hmm. The F5s and the and the Barracudas of the of this world are are that's what they're built for. Yeah, and they should you should still use the IDS checks at that level too. Mm-hmm. They really each play a role. Uh, this is just another layer of prevention or to help it along the way. Certainly, I I would also be interested in from a perspective of detection. Like, just let me know you felt like you were being attacked from these IPs. Right. Like that to me is really interesting. And it's mm-hmm. dynamic, so it'll actually take that IP back out of the list again at some point? Yep, you can put a time period in and where it takes it back out again, yeah. Interesting, okay. Yeah, especially with these zombies machines that get blocked because they were attacked, but what if they do a legitimate call down the road? Once they recover, for whatever reason. yeah, they, Exactly, or an ISP in. with the IP that's reassigned to another customer. Sure. At least it's not blocked forever. Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, and the FTP login restriction, are we still using FTP? Yeah, amazingly. Uh, so, I mean, you have web deploy and other methods of deploying nowadays. Yeah. But FTP still is, and especially with the secure functionality, it, yeah, it still has some good usage. And so what is it? what's the login restrictions now? What that watches for is invalid password attempts. Okay. And when it has a bunch of them. And what you can do, one of the, one of the key denial of service attacks that a web host uh, we've faced quite often is you'd have an attacker come in, pick a certain username, and then you just try to log in with it for, for six times. Right. And that user is blocked out for a half hour. Right. So it's really easy to do a, a type of denial of service attack against them. So the FTP login restriction, you can potentially set it to four or set it to something just below what your Active Directory policy is. Right. And it will start, and a gray list them the same way, so it will block them for a period of time and then allow it through later on. Yeah, I like that. Just after three tries, you're out for an hour. Right. Yep. 
Yeah, which is long overdue. Yeah, and it, like I said, I feel like FTP is just neglected, but then web dev never did work well enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too much overhead, too much pain. Too much everything, yeah. Just never worked that well. That's a yep. problem. All right, let's keep moving. Okay, uh, application initialization module. Uh, used to be called application warm-up module, and they had that in beta for a long time. The mm-hmm. IS team did, and then they pulled it. A lot of people... Uh, we realized how many people were using it when a lot of people complain. <laughs> Is this the only way we get to learn about features by taking it away and watching how many people scream? Yeah, so true. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. And they brought it back again, and that's backported to IS 7.5. Nice. And what that allows, and you know well, is you have that first hit penalty yeah. when you hit a fresh app pool. And we can talk about this, too, in the 8.5 features or some more stuff with that. But basically what happens when you hit that, uh, what it can do now is it can pre-warm it up. Yeah. It makes sure. And not only on the first visit, it's before the first visit. So as soon as, as, soon as the pool's up, you can you get to actually fire off some code and typically a pre-populated caches. Or the whole thing here is don't punish the first user. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so you want to do it on a, a server IS restart or a server load or in your overlapping app pools. Mm-hmm. And any time where your app pool is recycled for whatever reason, you can spin that up again on that second request as soon as possible. Yeah. That's yeah, another long overdue. Like, why didn't we always do this? Right. Yeah, and people tried. You know, you have little, you know, any kind of web monitoring that's checking. You're checking a certain page all the time to hit that as soon as possible. But yeah. Now we had um, we had deployment scripts that when they hop the server that immediately hit the page that would start all the initialization stuff up. Like right, we've so all done this. this. Exact, yeah. So it just this is now goes away, but only backported to seven point five, not seven. Right. There was uh, some certain functionality that it needed uh, somewhere in the pipeline, mm-hmm. and that was introduced in seven point five, mm-hmm. and so they were only able to leverage that from seven point five and on. Cool. All right, but this is just a good module. And I, we get back to this whole concept of wait, why aren't why aren't we always running the latest version of IIS? Like I noticed with certain apps, particularly thread constrained web apps, just mm-hmm. upgrading to, to IIS seven made a dramatic performance difference because of the threading model changes. Right. He was just yeah. then had this conversation with a customer like, well, we want to speed up our app, upgrade IIS. Well, then we don't want the compatibility issues. Just upgrade IIS. Like, it'll go faster. You're thread constrained. You'll be better off. Right. Yeah, you don't know how many people still ask me, you know, should I upgrade to 7.0? Right. You know, they're still on 6.0. And, and 6.0 was so good. It was very that, good. Yeah, many people are still on it. But you're right. You get a lot of things for free just from a just from the upgrade. Yeah, there's a whole conversation to be had here around... Server 2003 R2 was a very, very good version of server. The TCP IP stack was wicked fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a, an IIS was, was rock solid. Like that's a, but it's archaic now. I think we forget that when in the Vista time space, they redid the TCP IP stack and slowed mm-hmm. things down. It, like it's taken a while to get it up to the performance it was before then. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's just not a, not a normal visible conversation for most folks. No, it's all in the background, yeah. Why Why do we care about this, Scott? <laughs> How did right. we become this geeky? Yeah, that's right. Ah, oh, well, that's the kind of things we're playing with. Yeah. All right, any final things on IIS 8 before we jump into 8.5? Well, now we have the two scalability or three scalability things there as well. Okay. One is SSL, and if you set up a web farm 
we could, when iOS 7 came out, you can start to share the configuration store, yes. which was so exciting. Yeah. And it's just straight X copy back and forth, or you could point to a central, you know, a shared location. Now, I, I would argue this is the one feature that kept me buying products like F5 Big IP for a long time, just so I did not have to deal with the SSL problems. Stick it in the appliance mm-hmm. and forget about it. Right. Okay. So you you front loaded it yes. and offloaded it with SSL. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, and one yeah. of the reasons was this whole problem of how do I share this certificate across multiple machines? Like web farms were a pain in the butt without mm-hmm. having a front loaded device like that. Oh, very much so. And I've even written chapters in, in a couple of the books on the web farms and the SSL. I was always, you know, kind of close my eyes and, you know, do I really have to admit that it's this bad? Yeah. You know, Cause it, it really was. And for, for, and, uh, and uh, for $50,000, let's not hide here. Big IP was not cheap. Still isn't. Right. The problem went away and offloaded work. Like, they, and there's a, I have nothing bad to say about F5. It's an expensive product, but it was mm-hmm. very, very good at the things it needed to do. But it worked in scale. It right. sure did. Yeah. Yeah. So what they introduced in 8.0 is what's called the Central Certificate Store, CCS, mm-hmm. as the acronym they give it. And what that allows is you can create your PFX files, mm-hmm. and you just copy it, X-copy it to a single location store. You point the store to that location, and it works across servers. And the way it chooses uh, which one to use is basically based on the host header. Nice. And then it, the host header comes in, and it just says, I'm going to pick whichever PFX file it works. It works with wildcards, too. And, and it uses that. So this makes sense not just for the web host. It definitely does. Yeah. But anyone, even with a two-node web farm. Just a failover can, set up. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you is, don't have to manually maintain those bindings on two servers then. And so is there a uh, a redundancy? Is this a single point of failure here with the, with the CCS? Uh, there's two ways to do it. I mean, it loads the certificate. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. Um, now with 8.5, it can lazy load it. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, the one the way I would configure it is to point each to a local location and use DFS or some kind of sharing back and forth. Right. So you still have it locally, but you have replication to keep it in sync. Nice. Um, you can point to a central location, but I've always tried to avoid that for that very reason. Yeah. Is you tend to have a single point of failure. These are conversations you and I have had over drinks many times about how do we get rid of these single points of failure. And I'm looking at yeah. you, state server. Uh, other SSL characteristics in the eight that we need to know? Uh, and then SSL scalability, it's able to scale a lot more. So this is something that most people wouldn't have seen. And just because, you know, you're dealing with often just a small number, less than a dozen or dozens of certificates. Right. But in a large scale web host, this is a GoDaddy size or, you know, the large players. Yeah. And there was some major limitations loading a large amount of SSL certificates. And okay. so now that's uh, hugely addressed. In 8.0. That's an odd problem. It's a, yeah, it feels like an edge case problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's addressed. And then the other one, very similar, and this would be, well, besides WebSockets, the last thing in 8, is the configuration scale. The same thing happens with configuration. A lot of people don't realize if you deal with dozens or even hundreds of sites, your configuration loads no problem at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you get into those thousands, or especially if you get into like the upcoming, the Azure websites, and such, where let's say you had a 10-node web farm, yep. and I want one request or one site to be handled in the first two nodes, and the second one to be handled in node 3, 4, 5, 6. Mm-hmm. And then if 7 is taken out of rotation or whatever, you know, another of those 10 servers can take its place. Yes. So you can have thousands and thousands of sites handled on a small number of servers, 
and it's an unknown server that can get it each time. Yeah. Well, let's say the configuration for every single site loads on node 10. Well, you have tens of thousands of sites need to load, even though it may only host 500 sites, right? So the configuration, all of a sudden you have a configuration scale issue there. And so that has been addressed in aid as well, where it really only loads when it needs to. And it can handle huge amounts of sites. Yeah, this seems like another one of those edge case. If right. you've got and thousands of sites, you have a whole other set of problems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's only so many hosts like that in the world. Yeah, sure. For sure. Right. But, you know, it, it, I think more people are running the, you know, the cloud impact in the enterprise has been much more internal cloud tendencies that we don't provision a server per task anymore. They are running as a, a group of mm-hmm. servers and you're shuffling things around. And so you need to be more sensitive to the way uh, configuration flows. Right. Yeah. And we're going to see more of some of those shifts over time too. We'll start to realize oops, we're, we're running the scale because we're doing that kind of sharing load or sure. dumber objects. And therefore we need to load less on each object. We can't load everything on every, every node. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Interesting stuff. All right. Uh, 8.5. So this is server 2012 R2. Right. Which, yeah. And, I, and as well as Windows 8.1. Right. Which is currently in beta at this time. Yeah. Or and preview, they're calling it these days. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It's not beta yet. Right. Preview. And which we're hoping, to, uh, I think is expected to come by the end of this year. So we're going to see a very fast release cycle on this one. Yeah. Interesting to see this whole, uh, thing turned up and going a little faster. So if we, but we have got the bits. I'm running them in a few places. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your favorites in that 8.5? Yeah, well, for IS 8.5, there's really four main features. And so the one, again, comes to the scale, mm-hmm. is the dynamic website activation. And what that allows is when you load the website, rather than loading the entire configuration store, it loads just what it needs. This, again, is needed for the bulk web host. And so the, the default for that is 100. If you have a, less than 100 sites, it loads the entire configuration in store. Right. If you have greater than 100, it loads it on demand. Okay. And it's impressive to watch the Microsoft team demo it because they'll demo it with 100,000 sites. <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> and, and I forget the time. I think it's like two minutes or something like that. They can load the configuration for the entire two 100,000 on the new version. The old version, they say, well, well, we'll let it run away. I think it takes like half hour or something. It takes a huge amount of time to load it when you yeah. get that many sites. Yeah, for a particular audience, that's an awesome demo. But for most folks, that's a lot of sites. Right. Well, these next three may be a little bit more interesting for sure. the average person. Um, the other one is the idle worker process page out. And I guess that crosses the boundary. Some people may be interested. The mm-hmm. web host definitely will. And what that basically is is suspend the process. So you're familiar with the idle timeout yeah. in IS, and it defaults to 20 minutes. Yep. So, and that's meant for kind of the mom and pop kind of site or a site that isn't used very often. Why leave it running 24-7? The problem, and especially if you have, you know, occasional visitors to the occasional site, and if every single site is loaded in memory, your server can't scale. The problem you run into is it completely kills the process at the end of those 20 minutes, and you have the mom and pop complain, well, my aunt goes to visit the site once a week, and it's always slow. And it's because they're getting that first hit. Right. So what they've introduced now is the suspend process rather than terminate. And I would probably recommend that this becomes the new default. Microsoft sure. can't really change that because they, they have the default already. 
uh, but I would probably change that as a first step on a new server. And what that does is after that time frame, let's say 20 minutes, it will stream that uh, or suspend that to the page file. And what you see in the worker process, it may be let's two, three, four hundred meg or whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. it becomes a five meg process. It's down to next to nothing. And because it's a serial write and or sequential write to disk and then a read again on the first request, it's almost instant. And it retains everything. Your cache, the whole app pool warm up, everything else is retained on disk. Uh, but yet after that 20 minutes, you'll see all the memory really start dropping in what's actually running. Interesting. Is there a point where it gives up that disk space too? Like when, when does it actually fully expire? Uh, no, there's, there's no timeout on that. Okay. Uh, that would potentially make sense to have the two behind each other, a suspend after X amount and terminate after X, but no, it's an either or. All right. So in, it'll, so it's possible if nobody ever comes back to that, like it's going to sit there forever. Right. Yeah. But I mean, you're talking 200 meg you know, maybe at most in on the page file. Yeah, yeah, it can add up, but it's definitely a lot better. And you may make the decision, some sites you would terminate. I agree with you, though. It would kind of make sense to have both, wouldn't it? Well, after a year, you know, these 200 megs will add up after a year. Right. So Yeah, understand that most servers aren't, especially the Microsoft servers aren't online that long before a reboot. Right. So after a reboot, it's going to drop it. It's going to go away. So basically, right. yeah, by the time you patch this machine, it's going to clean itself off. Right. Because last time I looked, they still haven't figured out how to patch my machine without forcing a reboot. I know. We've been asking for that for so long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's a good thing to know. It's just like, hey, you know, this is, it's, you don't have, you don't have an arbitrary, we'll clean this up thing. It's like eventually when the machine patches or gets rebooted or something, now all that stuff's going to be dumped. Right. Yep. That's exactly. Cool. I could live with that. I was thinking like 20, 20 minutes and 24 hours wouldn't be a bad combination. Right. But 20 minutes and every Tuesday, I can live with that too. Yeah. Yeah. Or once a month on Tuesday. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's cool because I actually have sites that are exactly in that situation where yeah, it's not a lot of people. But uh, mm-hmm. they often go longer than the 20-minute delay, and every time you jack that number up, it has other issues. So, interesting. Good thought. Yeah, I think this is appealing to virtually everyone, and even in the corporate world, too. I commonly, people will say, you know, what do I do about this site? It only gets used. It's a tool site right. once a month or once a week or something. Yeah. You know, now this is perfect. You just set that. It say, uses a little bit of disk space, but no memory space. Yes. And you're good to go. Yeah, but let's face it. We have a lot of disk space. We can afford to have a few things laying around. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, your final favorites for IS 8.5. Yeah. So the enhanced logging, and this is pretty exciting, I think. And what the IS team, they've had a constraint for many years, mm-hmm. is the HTTP SES, which is what takes care of the logging, is outside of their control. Right. That's the Windows core team. And they've always complained, you know, we want to be able to go in and make some changes here, but it takes an act of Congress to make a change to the HTTP SES. Yeah, I would have thought act of bomber, but okay. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Good one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they finally, I guess, gave up on that. They figured that was too much. And what they've done, it's through a very creative way, is they're using event tracing mm-hmm. to allow you to have some enhanced data. And it's kind of through this. What happens is it will write the data through the normal stream. It goes and makes a page request, which comes back to HTTP Seth. And then what they do is kind of at a parallel path, they write out some of that data to the event tracing. And then later on, they can say, well, let's read 
the results of the two combined in event, event tracing, and they can have the end result, which they write to the log file. Interesting. So, yeah, so it's kind of a roundabout way of achieving what they need, but they've pulled it off. And it doesn't look like there's any performance drawback, uh, any consideration there. It looks like it's going to work well. And this now allows you to add not just the common fields that we've had, but now you can add, it's pretty exciting, you can add the request headers and response headers mm-hmm. and server variables. So let's say you want to record something like, something unique to your application. You want to write out to the logs. Uh, I mean, it can start with just simply a timestamp on the beginning of the page request and the end of the page request, or mm-hmm. you could have the amount of outstanding requests, or maybe the user's um, session, some kind of session ID or a user ID, you can now start to write that out to the log file in the IS logs, and then you parse that, and you can find some more detailed information about the entire generic request plus something very specific to that user. Wow. I mean, which means bigger log files, but if you're trying to actually diagnose the problem that's going on, this this helps a lot. Yeah, imagine having a user ID attached to every yeah. single well, entry we already, or at least every We already play log. this game, right? where I've got my ASP.NET DLLs are doing their own logging and they're holding a session cookie or some unique identifier. And then I'm pushing via query string or something to show up in the regular W3C logs, that same identifier so that I can match the things up after the fact. Right. We've been battling yeah, this so forever. Rather than doing that, because that, that's a valid way of doing it. And it's really how we have to do it yep. today. Yep. Yeah. Drop it in as a first class citizen now. Although more and more I'm I'm discouraging folks from using logging in general and aiming them towards ETW. Mm-hmm. Just because ETW is a much richer set. We've got better tools. You know, uh, the, the, my customers are using OpsMan. Like, they like ETW. ETW does a lot. Right. Well, so you're right. And that's actually the, the last feature that's new here in 8.5 is first class ETW writing uh, in real time. And then you can then attach to it. For example, Message Analyzer. I'm not sure if you've used it yet. It's currently in beta. And it replaces Network Monitor. And you can watch your ETW in real time. As soon as an entry comes in, you immediately have access to it. And you click on it. It's visualized. Much easier to work with than you've seen before. Yeah, and it, they, they talked about that last fall, the, the, the new Microsoft Network Monitor. But it's, I think it's still in beta, isn't it? It is. Uh, but I think it's it's in one of the later betas. Right. I think we're going to see this released even before Windows 8.1 comes out. That's good. Yeah. yeah. More more people need to know about Microsoft Network Monitor. This is something you're going to use. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Key t- tool to trade. Absolutely. Awesome stuff. Well, Scott, always fun to talk to you, sir. Thanks for this uh, recap. I feel pretty comfortable with uh, what we're looking at. It, again, it feels to me like... This doesn't feel like a difficult thing to upgrade to. You know, not, it's not the big jump mm-hmm. that IS6 to IS7 was. No, there's no learning curve at all. Everything's an optional subscription or else it's just a free performance benefit. That's right. it. And easy yeah. to do. Although I personally think this rethinking of how we log our websites into ETW is going to be a, a bigger challenge that'll benefit us a lot. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Sure thing, Richard. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.